0: Welcome to the Enneagram Journey. Today's guest with Suzanne is Enneagram 2, Hunter Mobley, and the great Reverend Joseph Stabile, Enneagram 9. A couple of things that I really liked about this podcast is that, one, we get to hear a different two's perspective. You know, not every number looks exactly the same as other people that are their number, and this is a great example of that. And also, I really liked hearing about Hunter and Joe's relationship. If you're in the Dallas area, this Saturday, October 6th, the Reverend Stabile is leading his world-famous Centering Prayer Workshop, and registration comes with a free copy of the event. And, whether you're in the Dallas area or anywhere around the world, you can attend Suzanne's upcoming workshop on the Enneagram and Movement in Stress and Security. It will be taught live here in Dallas, but then streamed online to anyone who uh, registers. Please visit the org or life in the Trinity Ministry.com and click on the announcement bar for more information and for registration. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast.
1: To Zeppi and Hunter, let's start this Anagram conversation around our experience with the sprinkler system last night. Oh, yes.
2: Be happy to. First of all, everybody has to know I was doing some stuff in the yard yesterday and realized that one of the heads on our sprinkler system was cracked. And so uh, a gentleman from a landscaping company was with me. He said, we can fix that for you and charge you a whole lot of money. Or you can go to Home Depot and just get the sprinkler head yourself for 5 bucks. So we were headed out to dinner last night. And right next to the restaurant was a Home Depot. So we stopped and bought the part. It was wonderful. Got it for 4 bucks.
3: Man, congrats. that's
2: good.
1: And I would have probably let the guy do it because oh. he was there and he found it. And I would feel like and that, he
3: had come so far. Uh-huh. Yes.
1: Yeah. And he was so kind to say, yes. you can do it cheaper somewhere else. And, but I would have said, Oh, what would you have done?
3: Oh man. I, yeah, I would have not trusted myself probably to do it. Uh, I would have needed him to probably kind of walk me through the whole, where in the world in the home Depot sprinkler aisle is this going to be? So yeah, I, I would have, I would have been tempted to let him do it. So I'm, I'm glad Joe was the one who met the guy, not us.
2: So I have the exact new part. We had a you know, wonderful dinner. I have finally at the end of dinner say we need to get home because I want to put this sprinkler head back on tonight before it gets dark.
1: So the nine says to the two twos that we need to get home before dark. So we just literally put our forks down and say, okay, let's go because we certainly want to do that. And then I say, I'm so glad you have Hunter here. He can hold the flashlight for you.
2: Right. And I don't need a flashlight. I'll hold it in my mouth and...
3: Screw hold it a flashlight in your mouth, that's Suzanne. I know.
1: Why would you do that when you have two helpers what right there? What in the
3: world? I I would just feel like the cruelest person in the world if he had held the flashlight in his
0: mouth.
1: And I couldn't love you as much as I'd do if you'd have let him. So we then say to you, that's ridiculous. I think I say... Hunter will hold the flashlight and you say, uh huh. So then we get to the house and you're kind of caught between Joe saying, I don't need any help. And in the car, you said, He's been with us for a day and a half, and this is his only opportunity to be alone. He probably wants to go out there by himself into the yard with the flashlight in his mouth and fix the sprinkler. He's ready
2: to have a moment of peace.
3: And
1: he did not disagree with that.
2: Absolutely not.
1: (laughs) And then we walked in the house, and you looked at me and said, should I go help? And I said, absolutely.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So, But here's the punchline. You don't know, Suzanne. So we go outside to help, and, you know, this stubbornness is a thing for nines. He held the flashlight in his mouth, and... I didn't tell you that until this moment because as a two, I was afraid you were going to be so disappointed in me for not ripping that flashlight out of his mouth.
1: Well, I, I, I would have taken it right out of his mouth. I'll say that. And while y'all were out there,
0: I imagine he was thinking I should have just let the guy install it. <laughs> After all So this. you wouldn't have to put up with us. Right. It was a moment of victory for me.
2: Peace. I got the sprinkler head in. It works Perfectly fine now. All by himself. He yeah. didn't need All any All by of myself. Us. I didn't need the help, but I'm <laughs> grateful for the concern. Uh, we're devastated because we couldn't help.
1: People think that nines and twos are very much alike, and mm. that's true. Mm. Yes. But we're so different, yeah. and that's important. You guys uh, are from different generations, and um, you're in the same business. You're both clergy, and you're both involved in church life, but outside of that, you're both just in the people business.
3: Yeah.
1: And it is astonishing to me how twos and nines can both be other referenced and yet have such astonishingly different approaches to helping people. Right. So y'all want to start talking about that and I'll jump in with some comments and questions.
2: I think it's also important, and, I, and Hunter, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm an introvert, and I don't see Hunter as an introvert Right in, in any way.
1: Well, there are introverts and extroverts in every number, but um, a woman came up to me at a workshop one time and said, you know, I think I might be a two, but I'm nothing like you. Mm. And I said, well, that's probably because I'm an extrovert, and she said, well, I am too. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm an extrovert extrovert. Yeah. So I'm kind of a notch or two ab- in extrovertness above you, yeah, Hunter.
3: Yeah. I mean, I, honestly, I I call myself an ambivert, you know, the, the little crazy term that kind of says somebody who swings between introversion and extroversion. So I, I kind of feel like I sit on that fence.
1: Mm-hmm. And you're not. I don't
2: sit on that fence at all. I, I am introverted. So I I will engage with the world and mm-hmm. with people. Um to be to be kind, and to be appropriate, but I don't go out seeking opportunities to uh, talk to people or to engage with people. I do it as a as my job or my profession, in my work. But I, unlike you, babe, I I wouldn't talk to the person in the grocery store aisle.
1: Yeah, I talk to everybody.
3: And you know, I was just gonna say, I wonder in in kind of. Selecting to be in the people business. You know, we're in ministry, but there's lots of ways of kind of being in uh, a helping profession. And so in kind of choosing a helping profession, I'm curious, Joe, what you would say to this. My, My kind of hunch about twos who choose helping professions is it's kind of like the alcoholic living above a bar. In a way, it's a way of feeding our personalities, not all in evil, awful ways, but it's a way of feeding our way of making it through the world by helping people, um, giving to people being loved through our ability to intuit what other people need. And I wonder if, is it true, Joe, that for a nine choosing ministry or choosing a helping profession is more about the deep awareness of the interior life that you are cultivating and offering to people? You know, did, did you kind of enter ministry from a perspective of wanting to help people, or from a perspective of feeling like you could be a spiritual guide and companion for people because you were able to tap into a deep spiritual
2: existence. It for me it was the reason I, that I went into into ministry was to help people mm-hmm. because of the circumstances of the training that I had and because of the experience I had. Of being in a religious order of priests, yeah. the spiritual aspect grew and grew and grew within me. What uh, obviously, when I first went in seminary at fourteen, I did the things that that helped me to grow spiritually because I had to. It was the rule. It was the order of the day, and and I did it. As I as I practiced that and did that for years, then it became more of a, of a part of who I was and and how I was. I feel very confident in being able to help people. I feel very confident in it, in being able to uh, listen to people and listen to their problems and come up with a solution or come up with an answer or uh, give them some help uh, and offer that back to them. But I don't need that. I I don't need to be doing that. I don't need to go out and look for people to do that. Uh, Something
3: that you said to me today that. I think is a helpful distinction between two and nine, because I I do get a lot of questions from people about I'm wrestling with whether I'm a two or a nine, you know, that that feels like a space where sometimes people have Mm -hmm. to kind of sit on the discernment fence with Enneagram. And today, Joe and I were talking about spiritual direction and Joe was, Joe is a fantastic spiritual director and that's something that he, uh, does and and you know lots? Of, he's in demand. Lots of people would like him to do that full time. Maybe Joe one day will be able to convince you to do that. Um, but so Joe was talking about doing spiritual direction for people, and he said, when people in my church ask me to provide spiritual direction for them, I tell them, let's try this for six months. Let's see if this works, and I promise, if at the end of the six months. It's not resonating with you in some way. Just tell me it's not. Tell me you'd like to find a new spiritual director, and I promise I won't be offended. (laughs) That is a really interesting distinction, I think, Suzanne, between two and nine, because I say the same thing. And I, at the end of the day, I think the same thing and I believe the same thing, but I don't feel the same thing. If I get through six months of working with someone in a spiritual context and they want to go a different way or they, it's not been helpful to them or it's not changed their life in such a way to where they would never want to end the relationship, um, I do take that personally. I mean, that taps right into my deepest insecurities as a two. And so I I think that some of that ability to detach from the emotional engagement of someone being needing your help is one of those places where twos and nines differ. Do you agree?
1: I absolutely agree. And one of the things I say is a short answer that really is probably, you know, usually it's at the end of teaching for eight hours that somebody wants to know what the difference is between nines and twos, and I'm kind of empty at that point, and I uh, briskly say, um, do you think you're either a two or a nine? And the person will say yes, and I'll say, well, do you care what other people think? And if the person says, yes, I care a lot, I say, well, then you're not a nine (laughs) because nines don't care. And here's what I should say. I think nines care about what other people think, but I don't think it determines their next step ever.
2: Wow. That's true.
3: That's really good because it totally, if I'm not in my healthiest place, it impacts my next step in that I will drop my agenda and drop what I know is right to do to respond to what they think and what they want from me.
1: Right. And schmooze. Oh, and yeah, yeah revisit mm-hmm. and all the things that go with that. And that, of course, in my language, is the personality-driven path. That's when your personality is driving you rather than you driving it.
2: That's a good
3: distinction.
1: So a lot of people listen to the podcast who don't hear me teach on a regular basis. And uh, I'm going to present both of you with a familiar story. And uh, I want you to react to it in terms of what your response would be and what you think would be called for. Um, There's one place that I teach several times a year that's difficult to get to and we were headed to that place and Joe happened to be traveling with me and um, we were coming back home and um, we were on an airplane coming out of New York actually and um, a couple started walking down the aisle of the airplane and they were among the last three people to board. They were clearly Spanish-speaking only. She was following him, and he was carrying his suitcase in front of him, and it was banded. And, you know, if you fly a lot, you know that there is no overhead space. You know that suitcase is not going to fit under the seat. You know they're going to take it from him. She's following behind him, and because of how I see, I'm quickly scanning the plane to see if there are two seats together anywhere, and there aren't. So I'm aware of... They don't speak English. There's no place for them to sit together. There's no place to put the suitcase. What's going to happen? It, well, Hunter, is that what you would have been aware of?
2: Oh, yeah. I would have been aware of that for sure. And Joe? I saw that there was going to be an issue.
1: Do you hear the difference in that? Mm, mm. And that has nothing to do with compassion. Right. That is all about what you're focused on. Right. You know, Brian McLaren says what you focus on determines what you miss. Right. Yeah. So you were there.
2: I was there and I was, I was aware that the gentleman didn't speak English. And so there was going to be an issue with the flight attendant who I didn't perceive was bilingual. And certainly they were some of the last people to board the plane. So I knew there was no place for the luggage.
1: What do you think your awareness would have been about
3: My awareness would have been about, okay, two levels. First, my awareness would have been about these people that need help, that can't get help. And I would have kind of emotionally connected to that feeling in some way. But then just as quickly, my awareness would have been about my uncomfortability of being a witness to this problem. And and so it kind of would shift to also be aware of, uh Oh, I'm witnessing this and I'm not maybe going to be able to fix this. I don't speak Spanish. Um, maybe I'm too far away to intervene in some way. And so it's kind of a double awareness of, of connecting to their emotional difficulty, but also creating an emotional difficulty in myself. And I think where maybe some of the you being more extroverted, Suzanne, than me is in that circumstance I would be tempted not so much to intervene but to go to sleep to the situation because I'd be kind of overwhelmed by the fact that I couldn't intervene in a meaningful way and I'm watching somebody be in need and I can't help them. So I would almost need to close my eyes, put my headphones in, and go to sleep to it.
1: So it it is for you I can't help them. And it is, am I correct, Joe, for you it doesn't occur to you to help them.
2: Yeah, it did, it did not uh, occur to me uh, to step in. And I think maybe some of that is the nineness of not asserting yourself uh, in a situation. No, some, this will get handled. I don't have to be the one to handle it.
1: What um, do you think would be the greatest difference in the two of you that you notice in your friendship as how you approach the world?
3: I think the um, talking about stance work,
1: mm-hmm.
3: me as a two, I'm in the dependent stance along with ones and sixes. Joe is a nine is in the withdrawing stance at will along with fours and fives. Um, Joe and I've been actually doing a lot of work together over the last couple of days and we've gotten some really great work done and it's been really fun and rewarding. What I've noticed in that is, First, just a really simple thing. Joe is more comfortable in silence than I am. I mean, that's let's just start there and say that sitting around a dining room table doing work with Joe. I had to kind of learn that I don't need to just fill up the silence with anxious talking. Joe's okay. He doesn't need me to talk. He's processing something that we just talked about. Maybe he's making a note about it. Maybe he's turning it around in his mind. Um, maybe he's okay just kind of sitting here for a moment. And so that's just one layer of the cake of a difference sometimes in twos in that dependent stance, withdrawing sp- stance space. Um, I'm less comfortable in silence because. I'm kind of wondering, what does that mean? Are, are you happy with where this is going? Are you happy with me? Do you feel like we're connecting in a meaningful way? Are you tired of connecting with me? Am I tired of connecting here? Um, that's a big difference in just what stance work brings to the table.
2: It's
1: just a huge difference.
2: It is. And and I think as a nine, to answer what Hunter was just saying, it, he in our time together, he presented a lot of very good ideas and he was he in a sense was taking the lead of, of copying down our notes and, and what we were talking about. And I was not necessarily needing to talk, but to, to ruminate on what was going on in my head and ruminate on the things that we were talking about together and, trying in my own self to synthesize the ideas, what Hunter was presenting, what I was thinking within myself. So I, I believe that was a, a real sense within me of, of what was taking place. And I really wasn't aware, I wouldn't have been aware if Hunter was uncomfortable with my silence or, or what, was taking place at the table at the time because it, I was I was taking in all of the information, trying very hard as a nine to to truly listen to everything. Because as I've learned living with you, my dear, <laughs> sometimes <laughs> we we nines don't don't catch all hundred percent of what we're listening to.
1: That was a sweet way to say you only listen to <laughs> two thirds of what's said.
2: <laughs> That's it. I was trying to say that in a sweet way.
3: You know, it's funny. One of the ways that I, when I work collaborative, collaboratively with somebody else, um, my default is to be the person who gives the other person something to react to. Uh-huh. And I think that comes into play also in, in my two-ness. And if I'm working with a nine, that person's nine-ness is... Um, I'm oriented to say, Hey, here's something, here's a ball. Do you want to play with it too? Do you like it? Do you like the color of it? Are you interested in it? How do you feel? If you don't like it, we'll return it. We'll take it back to the store. We'll get a new ball. We'll choose a different color. And that's kind of my posture. Uh, usually kind of working collaboratively with somebody else.
1: Joe, talk a little bit about withdrawing. I'd like to hear you talk about whether or not you pull back from people, as opposed to whether or not you go inside yourself. And assuming those are two different postures that you have, what differentiates them? And then, Hunter, I'd like for you to talk about how you experience that in withdrawing numbers and what the corollary is, if there is one, in dependent numbers.
2: I think what I would have to say is that I go into myself rather than withdraw from. I, there are times when I do withdraw from people. I, there's no doubt. I've, I've, I'm expended, my energy's gone, and I, I just don't want to give or be involved or participate any more than I've already done. So I, I do withdraw but i think for the most part what happens is is i listen and go back into myself and and i think that's maybe one of the difficulties that people have with nines is we appear like we're sitting on the fence and we're not making a decision because we're trying to decide whether or not we want to go with that or not go with that because we see two sides to everything so i'm 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 listening to myself and i'm hearing whatever else has been proposed by other people and trying to synthesize that within me to decide man do I agree with that do I not agree with that do I want to do that or do I not want to do that Uh, and then at that level how invested would I be with that response or that answer versus my own and I think some of that has to do with that push-pull kind of energy that we have as nines because we don't want to have a conflict by answering too quickly and taking a stand opposed to whoever's there with us. Uh, And we're being so cautious on the other side about what, you know, what what out there might cause us some conflict.
1: Do you use one of the two when you are um, feeling defensive or uncomfortable, or do you also use them interchangeably when you're uncomfortable?
2: You mean thinking and feeling?
1: No, I mean withdrawing, withdrawing or going or inside. Going
2: inside. I um, I use the going inside more than the withdrawing. If it becomes a, an uncomfortable position, then my tendency is to withdraw. Okay.
3: And the beauty, I think, of having this language and the Enneagram is for me, and I think this is probably true of all non-withdrawing numbers, is our experience of somebody who's either withdrawing or going inside of themselves is the same. Um, and and we, don't, we don't know without this kind of language what the distinction is. It may feel to me like Joe's withdrawing from me when really he's going inside mm-hmm. for a moment and it's mm-hmm. not about getting away from me. It's about getting in touch with himself, something inside of himself. And so if I don't have a language for this, if I don't have the Enneagram or if I'm in average to unhealthy space, um, I can experience the withdrawing of a four or five or nine or anybody as rejection in some way. Mm-hmm. It can kind of feed the shame cycle in that kind of shame loop um, if I'm in healthy space, hopefully I choose a better path. But we live life in average space a lot, and so if I'm already triggered in some way, it can feel like a rejection, um, you know. And I think I think for dependent stance numbers, you know, we have we have the same capacity for people misunderstanding us because there's moments where we're moving toward another person that's really about moving toward the other person to to help in a, in an honest and a good way. And also there's times where we're moving toward other people to help ourselves and to feed something in ourselves, to feed an insecurity or to feed a need in ourselves or to go get somebody because we need to be gotten. And, um, that can be the same kind of misunderstanding.
1: So how do you guys each react to aggressive numbers?
3: You know, I, I react pretty well usually to aggressive numbers because with aggressive numbers, you know, there's the spark in the eye. There's the energy and the passion and the intensity that they're bringing. And I'm looking for a spark. I'm looking for a charge in some way. Um, and so generally with aggressive numbers, there's kind of that sense that that we can kind of meet each other's energy. There's some kind of relational energy that is common between them. When Does I, it
1: have to do with doing?
3: It probably does. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it probably does. When I have trouble meeting aggressive numbers, it's when I intuit that aggressive numbers are moving quicker than I'm moving. You know, sometimes in relationship, you know, it's great when you encounter an aggressive numbers attention and their spark and you meet it. But then they may not want to sit with me in the moment or kind of sit in the relationship or sit in the feeling or sit in the conversation or sit in the activity as long as I want to sit there. And so if I feel like the aggressive number is kind of moving on quickly to something else, something shiny or something more appealing, something that's got a little bit more charge to it. uh, That's where sometimes it can feel like we're missing each other.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: If I like the direction the aggressive number is going, if I um, am in tune with what the, the aggressive number wants to do, then I will come in along behind that person and and go with that Uh, go with the flow it's sort of like you know you come in behind a great big semi on the freeway Mm -hmm. and it's sort of you're you're catching the tailwind and and you're going with it and it's going pretty smooth Um, and and I'm happy to do that and it sort of allows me to to go with the flow and not have to use up more energy than I've already you know I'm sort of caught up with their energy which carries it forward. If it, if it's a situation with an aggressive person that is going a direction I don't want to go or a direction that I feel is going to be conflictual, then uh, I'll almost turn and run.
3: I, I feel like it's it's interesting, Joe, to just I'm noticing the language you used of I'm happy to come in behind an aggressive number if they're headed in a direction I want to go. That's a that's something that that I, I wouldn't feel, I'm happy to come beside yeah. an aggressive number if they're going in a direction that I want to go. Um, that's just kind of an interesting difference in language we might use.
1: Yeah. It's interesting because once we start to, to parlance this into examples, the differences are many. Yeah. The fact that you're both other referenced has a tendency to be the same thing. So would each of you talk about what, it's lo- what you think I mean when I say you're other referenced?
3: For me, I think you mean <laughs> that I'm oriented to helping others, to uh, caring about others deeply and wanting to fix them, save them, help them, sometimes in an unhealthy space. But also, I think you mean that I care a lot about what other people think and I care a lot about what other people feel. and. I many times when I'm not in my healthiest place will evaluate how I'm feeling, how I'm doing, how I think of myself based on how the people around me that day have non-verbally communicated that they think or feel or believe about me.
1: Do you ever feign interest in something because somebody that you admire is interested in that thing
3: all the time? And, And in fact it's not always feigning i've actually had to realize that um there there are times in my life where i've gotten to the end of the day and it's like i've learned about somebody that does some interesting profession as a marine biologist and the next thing i know i've thought for 45 minutes about the fact that i might want to leave my career and be a marine biologist mm-hmm. and it's not been feigning that interest it's actually kind of entered into their story in some way there are times where i'm pretending and feigning um But I've had to I've had to really do some work to not just enter people's stories so deeply sometimes that I actually think that their interests are my interests. And that's what sometimes bringing up thinking has to look like for me is to ask before I get the application to marine biology school. Man, was this actually something I'm interested in or good at or experienced in or could do? Or is this just that I admire this person and I love them and I wanted to connect with them so deeply that I'm ready to do it with them?
1: How's that different from... Wing
0: related? Like that would seem like a, a double whammy for a two with a three wing or a big three wing where it's like, guess what? I'm,
1: I'm, I'm doing low. this. Yeah,
3: yeah. I, yeah. Could, I, I Check could it out. I'm really t- good at this. And it must be said, I've got a big three wing. So I, I encountered that
2: a lot. I think you're right.
1: And and I, what about... you? How's that different from merging, Joe?
2: I have to start by saying I think what happens to me is in terms of being other referenced is I am always aware of what other people are
1: doing. Talk about that.
2: Well, I'm just aware of so much. I'm, I'm almost distracted by what is doing around me. So I'm aware of what other people are doing in a store. I'm aware of what uh, people are doing. If they're building a building, a new construction, as I'm driving down the road, I'm aware if there's a street person on the street corner and he's picking up, he's asking for money. Um, I'm just, um, I find myself very aware uh, that there's a lot of doing around me. I, that's the way I take in information. I don't necessarily respond by doing anything myself. But I think that's my, my other reference is I, I am distracted by and I notice other people doing things all the time. I I can be in a conversation, for example, with you, Suze, at a dinner table and then be aware that somebody over here, maybe a bartender, is pouring a drink for somebody at the end of a bar or that there's people over here at another table who are ordering their dinner with the waiter.
1: uh, And from my perspective, that's being... That's distraction. That's taking you away from Whatever what I'm said. saying. How exactly. does that play for you, Hunter?
3: Yeah, it's same. It would play the same way for me. Um, that's that's such interesting language, Joe. Because yeah, my other's referencedness is usually about entering the story of somebody else. Yeah, or or inviting somebody to enter my story in some way, and so. That's just, interesting. and I don't do
2: that. I yeah. I don't need them in my story, and I really don't want to be in their story. I'm just aware that their story is over there, different.
3: But Joe, we want you in our stories. <laughs> <laughs> over there. This is see your story. We
2: you don't need to come yeah. Stay out of my story, please. <laughs> I've got the flashlight. I, no that's worry. right. I can do the the sprinkler system all by myself.
1: I find both of you to be gentle. Does that ring true to you?
3: Yes, it does. Um, that rings true to me. It's, it's kind of a core value, I think, that I find in myself that I'm, I'm it's one of the things that I'm kind of proud of or, or glad about in myself. I do think that that's connected in a lot of ways to any gram number. Um, because twos being others reference, if you find the healthy side, I want to say it's connected, I think to the healthy side of an Enneagram type, if you make your way to the healthy side of two space where you are connected emotionally to other people's feelings, but in a boundaried way, that's not just going to create codependent kind of messes everywhere or enmeshment. But you are emotionally connected to other people's feelings, other people's needs, other people's experiences that there's a gentleness in that there's a tenderness in that there's an empathy in that there's a mutual understanding in that the the thing that you taught, Suzanne, that has always stuck with me the most about being a two is you said two things. It's really important for twos to live in centered set communities, not bounded set communities. And what I think you mean by that is every community is usually either centered set or bounded set, which just means that in centered set communities, the community is oriented around a core centerpiece and known by that. In a bounded set community, the community is kind of known by who's kind of in the boundaries and not in the boundaries and who's following the rules and not following the rules. And two's want to be in centered set communities because twos want everybody to find their place at the table. And when we live into the healthiest side of that, I think you, you can't but not be gentle and tender and empathetic and, um, mutually understanding of other people.
1: So Joe, before you answer that, I want to, I want you to speak to this cause you know, both of us, I think that I'm tender mm. and I think I'm kind Yeah. I don't think I'm gentle.
2: Hmm. Um, You are very tender. I I wouldn't necessarily use the word gentle to describe you.
1: I I actually think that... uh,
2: You're a strong personality. I
1: am big in the room. Yes. And I find you, Hunter, as my number, Mm -hmm. to be very present in Mm -hmm. the room. I seldom experience you big in the room. True. True. And, um, I, you know, I, I think it's real important when there are distinctions that are subtle about any Enneagram number that they be pointed out. Yeah,
3: that's good. I agree.
1: We have similar hearts. Mm. Uh, we love folks and all of that. I'm not gentle.
3: One thing that I would say to that though, too, of my experience of you in rooms with a lot of people is I also think that you often feel like you've put up a more aggressive boundary or presence or thing than you actually have. I've, I've seen you kind of almost have to not discipline a room before, but I've, I've seen mm-hmm. you have to speak to something that you was going to be hard for you to address. And almost every time I think your perception of how, much you might have offended somebody or hurt somebody's feelings is always greater than what the experience in the room is. Um, so I think that's just interesting to how we perceive ourselves. Yeah,
1: that's real good. Um, Especially as we, as twos. Yeah. Okay. Tell me about your gentleness.
2: I have always, I think I've walked through life peacefully. I don't get shook by circumstances and situations. Even even uh, difficult situations, mm-hmm. times when, when one would have to react or have to respond very quickly to a circumstance. Uh, I just pretty much calmly believe that, that we can get through this, we can just take this slowly, step by step, we can find the answer, we can have a solution.
1: Do you see that as a non-characteristic?
2: I think part of it is a nine characteristic because, um, our desire for things to just be peaceful. So let's not ramp it up. Let's not create chaos or havoc or, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in the circumstance or situation. So I think nines bring a certain sense of, of calm and peacefulness to whatever situation, um, that they find themselves in. Um,
1: One of the things you accuse me of in our life together when I'm a little whipped up is you say that's just incendiary. And I've been waiting for 30 years to, <laughs> to get say to that. say that to him. That's just incendiary. Right, right. Well, and I haven't been able to say it yet. <laughs> How do you relate to that?
0: Oh
3: man, I you know, I I relate to that in very specific one-on-one dynamics. You know, a, a group or even a small group of a family, three of us are not necessarily going to see that, but in one-on-one dynamics with people who I'm really safe with and connected to. I think they, their perspective and experience of me is really different than what the world gets, yeah. and that could be said of me too. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm curious. I, I want to just ask Joe a question. Just followed up on that. I'm curious, Joe, in nine space, what does anger look like for you? Because, particularly as a a, a clergy person, as a spiritual person, as such a a mature, healthy person. Um it's hard for me to, to know what anger looks like for you. And I'm just curious, what does anger look like for you?
2: Anger, uh, scares me.
0: Hmm.
2: Uh, initially my responses, angry responses are always going to be passive aggressive. And, And, and so, um, unless you know me well, you wouldn't know that I was necessarily being passive aggressive and, and, and angry in that kind of situation. And I think for most nines, unless they have an enormous eight wing, I think their, their nine, their anger is really pretty held back and, and held in check to the point that when they do get very angry and it explodes, it scares them. Yeah. And, and we're, I'm afraid of what's inside of me when that comes out in, in that regard. Uh, but I, I think maybe it's because nines and their connection to nature is, for many nines, is is very strong. There's almost this understanding that that there's something bigger than us. There's something bigger than me that has got all of this connected in a in a bigger way. So it's 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 let's just let's just. Peacefully walk our mm-hmm. way through life circumstances and life situations. I get angry at things that are unjust. Mm. Yeah, uh, that that causes me to to be more expressive uh, of with the anger that I I have within me. But and and some of it I think Hunter has to do with the spiritual journey and the spiritual walk and and my real deep trust in in God's lead and guidance that it, it's everything's going to work out. Yeah. It's, it's all going to be okay. Just, I
1: just want to add to that, though. When I started working with Joe, I was your age, Hunter. I was 33, and yeah. he was 37. And the thing that he was working on was anger.
2: Patience, anger, yeah.
1: He just w- knew that he didn't want to be angry, and then he started to work yeah. at that. And I... I think um, nines, because they're conflict avoidant, have intentionally worked on anger. Right. What does anger look like in you as a two?
3: And anger, um, anger. I usually have to do some work to get to anger, even though I'm experiencing it in some way. I used to say I never get angry. I never experience angry. I'm never angry. I really. I used to say that to people and kind of feel a lot of pride about that. And what I realized is, no, there's there's anger there. there. There's anger inside me, and sometimes I'm interpreting it as shame or I'm interpreting it some other way. But for me, anger um, can kind of rise up and surprise me. It usually comes in stress. Uh, I can go to an unhealthy side of eight in that stress journey that two can make to eight, and I can really surprise somebody by exploding. Yep. And it usually looks messy. It usually looks like tears and raised voice, you know, just something kind of messy rather than something that's strong and determined. It looks vulnerable. I think anger and disorganized. Yeah. I think anger looks disorganized and it looks chaotic and ultimately it looks vulnerable. And it looks like someone looking at me needing to say, Hey, uh, are you okay? <laughs> you know, come back to me. Let me hold you for a minute.
1: Lots of young folks in seminary these days. That's a good thing. Joe, what would you tell a young nine in seminary looking toward ordination? And Hunter, I'm going to ask you what you would tell too.
2: I would tell them two things. Uh, first of all, if if you're going to be successful as a nine in ministry and achieve what needs to be done, then you are going to have to either uh, do this for yourself, or surround yourself by people who will help you prioritize the work, the activities, the ministry, the the actions that you get yourself involved in, because there are so very many opportunities in ministry that will lay themselves before you. You will engage in in what's right in front of you and you will miss and drop and let slip other opportunities that need to be handled or should be prioritized so you need to to do that kind of prioritization for the work that you're doing um, to be successful and the second thing i would say is be aware to set some boundaries around your life and ministry uh, together because ministry will eat up your whole life if you allow it to. It will take every moment of your life and um, you can get caught up just giving to it over and over and over again.
1: That's been a real challenge for us.
2: It has, it has been a challenge. And I think it was a particular challenge for us coming my life at 40 out of the priesthood where I did not have a wife and children and had no other commitment other than ministry into a life where I did have a wife and children and a life outside of ministry that was more important and prioritized. And I can look back over my 30 years in in Methodist ministry and think of the times I gave away time with my family or time I should have spent with the family to the church, and those people in the church are now saying, "I, I wonder, who was that pastor we had? I think maybe he was a former Catholic priest, you know, because I gave them so much time and. Um, one thing
1: it. I'd like to just just add about that, that for it to have full integrity, is you're one of the best at putting family first and work second, and it's still. Is still conflictual. a struggle. Yeah. yeah
2: it's still conflictual. Yeah. How about you? I would say
3: you got into this work because you love the local church and you love people and you wanted to help. And one of the things that's important to realize is there is a way in which you lose the things that you lead. And it is going to feel to you like you who loved the local church your whole life. That's why you did this. All of a sudden don't have a church anymore Mm -hmm. because you don't get to sit in the pew and just enjoy worship or just enjoy community. You know, you're, you also got to think about the roof and the, what's happening next in the service and what needs to be done. And somebody's going to kind of need help from you in some way in a, in a bad time. And so I think as a two heading into ministry, it is incredibly, incredibly important to find one or two communities outside of the local church that you are going to serve in that are just safe, safe, safe landing spots for you. They don't have to be even other Christian communities. I mean, they can be a variety of types of communities. But you're going to need some other place to find community and belonging outside of the local parish that you're serving. And there's going to be tons of blessings in that local parish. It's going to be good. But at first, especially, it's going to feel like loss because you're going to be surprised at how much it feels like you've lost the thing that you love.
1: Yeah, that's so good from both of you. That's such good sage advice. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank
2: you. Thank you for having us. The Enneagram Journey podcast is produced by Life in the Trinity Ministry. Music is provided by Solvay Lighthouse. Professional photography is courtesy of Courtney Perry. We invite you to visit the for more information, and we welcome your questions and comments. Thank you for being with us today.